I knew one day I was going to be on that stage. It just had to be with all the rest of the country singers and musicians. And I finally made it in 1956. So it's not hard for me to accept anyone's music if I really enjoy it. The country music is music with a lot of class and a lot of soul. And of course, it's just ordinary stories told by ordinary people, and sometimes in an extraordinary way. You're listening to Three Chords and the Truth, the ultimate podcast for country music fans. Hosted by Elijah and Anna Lale, we're digging up the stories behind America's biggest country music legends. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Three Chords and the Truth podcast. This is Elijah. And this is Anna. And today we're going to be covering Eddie Arnold. So we figured we'd try something a little bit new this time, where at the beginning of each episode, we're just going to ask each other what we knew of the artist before we started doing the research for the podcast. So what did you know about Eddie before we got going? Um. Well, I know when we recorded our last episode, you mentioned his name and I did not know it right off the bat like I've it's it's one of those names I know but I couldn't think of like a song or um, a particular album connected with it but once I you did say make the world go away I do know that song um and I can like think of it off the top of my head um but to be honest I think that's really all I knew was make the world go away and just vaguely his name yeah yeah that's pretty much same for me too. That that was the main song I knew. I love that song. Mm-hmm. And then it's so good. I didn't few... know it was from a country artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll get into that. But that's kind of interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I love that song, and that was the main one I knew. I knew a few others, kind of before, um, before researching everything as well. But didn't know a whole lot about him personally, about his life, and mm-hmm. just kind of the legacy that he left behind so we had so much fun researching this one though we we kind of both had a hard time breaking away and finally okay let's just record because we're it's so interesting we're having a lot of fun um but yeah before we jump in one thing i did want to mention was that we hit 100 streams this week so that's really exciting thank you guys for listening and for tuning in um and i just hope you'll continue to follow along with us and we are going to start planning our artists for the 1950s here pretty soon. So um, so that's coming. Season one, we're, we're about halfway through season one, yeah. which is crazy. I feel like it's going by fast. And then there's an album coming out that we're going to be reviewing soon. It's Ernest's... Two Dozen Roses. Two Dozen Roses, yes, yes. So pretty much the sister album to Flower Shops. Yeah, we're super excited about that. So... That'll be out soon, but we're going to get into Eddie Arnold today. Eddie Arnold was born on May 15, 1918, and he passed away on May 8, 2008. And he's actually the person who died the most recently out of who we've done so far. So everyone we've done so far has died in the... Uh, 20th century. So his full name is Richard Edward Arnold, and he's known as the Tennessee Plowboy. And he came from a large farming family in Chester County, Tennessee. That influenced his stage name, the Tennessee Plowboy. 
and this is just kind of crazy. So when I saw Chester County, I was like, that sounds really familiar. I figured out that was 40 minutes away from where I lived in middle school. I, in middle school for two years, we lived in Savannah, Tennessee. That's like 40 minutes away from where, where he was born. That's really um, cool. So that's crazy. Well, speaking of Chester County, apparently Eddie Arnold also wrote an autobiography back in the day, and it's called It's a Long Way from Chester County. Okay. So I was trying to look up a little bit more information about it, and apparently it's a pretty hard book to find. You can find it on Amazon and eBay, but they're all used copies. There hasn't been a reprint in a very long time, it seems like, if any. And most of the copies I found were very sporadic in price. Mm-hmm. Some were like 200 something dollars and have been autographed by them. That's some were only wild. 20 Some were like 50 huh. And like I said, they're pretty hard to find, it seems like. So if you... If you're ever out out on your adventures and you see it's a long way from Chester County, you might have just you struck a little bit of gold. Snag that. Yeah, I was about to say, if we're at Goodwill, we may need to look in the book section for that yeah. one. <laughs> um, so his father was a sharecropper, and I thought that was pretty funny. We, we had that same story with Ernest Tubb, the sharecropper family. Mm-hmm. So a little about his childhood, he played the fiddle while his mother played guitar. So they had a little family band going on. Unfortunately, his father passed away when he was only 11, um, and that forced him to leave school and begin helping on the family's farm. Do we know why his dad passed away? I do not know. I didn't find that. But creditors auctioned the family farm the next fall, which is just so sad. That's super sad. The Arnolds became sharecroppers during the Depression. That was sort of the the tragic part of his childhood, but then there's also this sweet side where he found music, and it really uplifted him and his family. It, sound, it kind of reminded me of Dolly Parton a little bit, just how it was like a poor family, but they all came together and played music together, and it's a really sweet picture. So Arnold's cousin lent him a Sears Roebuck silver tone guitar. He learned to play that with the help of his mother. He listened to records by Gene Autry, Bing Crosby, and Jimmy Rogers on a wind-up Victoria. So that's just a pretty neat, like I said, picture of this this poor family that's that was dealing with a lot of tragedy but also found a lot of joy in mm-hmm. country music. He must have been a really big Bing Crosby fan because when I listened to some of the interviews that he did later in life, he couldn't say enough about Bing Crosby. And I actually have two clips here. I I just think they're hilarious. You said that uh, country music doesn't realize the debt it owes to Bing Crosby. That's right. That's right, because Bing was probably the biggest, most popular singer this country's ever had. He was the biggest record seller this country's ever had. You know, he sold on one single record, White Christmas, 140 million on one single, not an album now, I'm talking about one single record. That's rather astounding, isn't it? Yeah, I read this not long ago. What did he do for country music? He recorded so many of the country songs, like You Are My Sunshine, Makes No Difference Now, Walking the Floor Over You. He recorded the first hit I ever had. Uh, On and on and on. And he did them straight. He never made fun of them. He always did them in a melodic way. And of course, the songs became well known because of his popularity. The songs took on 
the popularity of the whole country. Well, don't leave out Bing Crosby. Oh, Bing Crosby, okay, but... Oh, probably the number one record seller of all time. Uh, and what are yours, over 85 million? Yes, yes. That's a lot of recordings. Yeah, yeah. yeah a lot of people forget about Bing, but mm -hmm. Bing was such a record seller. And, uh, of course, Bing was a what we, we call him a popular singer, which he was, probably the greatest of his time. Uh, but he did a lot of country things. Yeah. I, I think it's so funny. For Eddie, it seems like Bing Crosby is not just a artist that he likes. It's, it's like, it's a lifestyle. Like, he, he was influenced by Bing Crosby for the rest of his career, and we're going to talk about that more later. Here's stories like that of, you know, this poor boy growing up, but his influences being Gene Autry and all those. And right. then, and a lot of times he's in the Country Music Hall of Fame now with Gene Autry. Yeah. I just think yeah. so that's just kind of a cool thing. Like, you never know where you're going to end up in well, life. Well, and it's funny, too, that we're talking about Gene Autry in the same season of, right. of our podcast. I mean, it just shows, like, in, in the grand scheme of time here in 2023 seems like they were in the same time period but to think that he was a kid listening to gene autry who was not that far behind him and and not that much longer down the road he'd be selling records and doing exactly what gene was doing i'm right. sure he never expected that so in 1934 he was 16 years old and he made his debut on a radio am station in jackson tennessee and he began performing at local nightclubs, and he was hired permanently by the same station in 1937. And then one year after that, he was hired by a station in Memphis, Tennessee. So it's, it's funny, you're going to see these little stepping stones. He moved up from Jackson, Tennessee to Memphis, Tennessee, and there he became one of the most popular performers. And then he left Memphis for a station in St. Louis, hmm. Missouri. So again, little move up, and he uh, followed briefly at a spot station in Louisville, Kentucky. So, and, and at around the same time, he was doing comedy on the side. Oh wow! And he married Sally Gayhart in 1941, um, who he was married to until his death. That's right. I think that we need to have some kind of little thing we do in the podcast for to celebrate when there's an <laughs> artist that was married. A solid to, marriage. A solid marriage, yeah. Um, we need like a little do-do-do, I don't know. Um, and then he performed for WSM, which is the Grand Ole Opry, during 1943 as a solo artist. This is really where his country music career started to take off. I think it's really cool just how much he traveled during that time. You could yeah. tell. You could tell, for lack of better terms, that he was chasing his dream. Mm -hmm. He was going where it took him. He was going where the opportunities were arising. And he just kept on rolling with it and ended up in Asheville. Yeah, that's really cool. And then he signed a contract with RCA. His manager was Colonel Tom Parker, which, if you have recently watched the Elvis movie, you'll know that name. So, obviously, we'll dive quite a bit more into Colonel Parker whenever it comes time for us to do an Elvis episode. But So, we'll just go over just kind of a brief history right now about Tom Parker and, and his life. So, basically, he just had quite the story himself. Mm -hmm. And, like I said, he was most notably known and recognized as Elvis Presley's manager, but he also managed a few country talents like Eddie Arnold and Hank Snow. Mm-hmm. 
It talks about Hank Snow in the movie. Yeah. yeah. And so Parker claimed that he was born and raised in Virginia. However, it eventually came out to be a lie, as he was born and bred in the Netherlands, and he moved to America in 1909. Hmm. He also claimed to be a colonel, because in 1948, the Louisiana governor, Jimmy Davis, gave him the honorary title of a colonel. But he pretty much stuck that on the front of his name oh. to carry it around as a badge to seem a bit more respectable, I guess you could say. <laughs> okay. And Tom Parker was in the military for a brief time. And he actually ended up being pretty much the highest rank he achieved was a private. And he was eventually discharged after he was arrested for desertion. And he was later diagnosed during his discharge with the army as being a psychopath. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I believe it though. He's he's crazy. So he managed Arnold in the late 1940s and took a very intimate approach, the same kind of approach that he took with Elvis. Mm. He ended up moving into Arnold's own home in Nashville, Tennessee Ugh, with his family. See, that's too much. He was pretty overbearing and he did have some good things though. I mean for as Shady as Colonel Parker was in a lot of ways and a lot of the business dealings that he did, he did know how to get a name out there. Right. He knew success. And so he was able to help Arnold get big shows in Vegas and even in small acting roles in movies. But we were looking at this old picture that had Colonel Parker, Elvis, and Eddie Arnold all in the one picture. Mm -hmm. And Anna had brought up the comment just about how different the ages were between Eddie Arnold and Elvis Presley. Not that right. Eddie was old at that point, but... No, but you can just notably see Elvis looks like a kid. Yeah, and, and he was. I mean, Eddie looks like a man. He looks like a an adult, you know? Yeah, and I think it's interesting because, just like we said, he was a bit more well-traveled and, you know, had, had dealt with during the uh, Great Depression on his own farm and stuff like that. So he was a bit more hardened that he mm-hmm. kicked Tom Parker to the curb pretty quickly. He ended up firing him pretty quickly thereafter. He had him hired just after a few years. Yeah. But, like you said, you can kind of see it with Elvis being just younger. And Colonel Parker was a huge part of his success. Yeah. That he really held on. It's, it's so sad to think about. And, of course, we'll talk about this when we do our episode on Elvis. And oh, that would probably be in the 50s because that's mm-hmm. mainly when his country career was. But we, we just cannot imagine what Elvis would have been like without Colonel Parker. Because you look at Eddie Arnold. I mean... He is a perfect example of someone who took the what's good about Colonel Parker, t- took the good business strategy, but he kicked him to the curb when it started getting toxic and really, really bad relationship. Right. And if Elvis would have had that ability on his own or had someone in his life that would have been able to say, hey he's bad for you he's not he's not a good manager he's shady right who knows what could have been you know and we will get we'll very much get into that i've got some monologues planned on that already it's gonna be a three-hour episode when we get to elvis but (laughs) but anyway so um arnold's first single was little noticed but the next one was each minute seems a million years and it's a really sweet little song i just added it to my playlist um, it scored number five on the country charts in 1945, and Arnold's next 57 singles all ranked in the top 10 in the U.S. country charts, Golly. including 19 number one successes. And uh, in 1946, he scored his first major success with That's How Much I Love You. Um, that's a really creepy song. Is it? <laughs> yes. I looked it up, and... 
I'm not gonna read the lyrics on here. Just you just look it up on your own, y'all. It's it's just it's it's a little creepy to me. Just not. Well, I'll add in that Arnold, um, he made the Billboard charts every single decade until he died. Even in the 2010, or I'm sorry, in the early 2000s, whenever he wasn't really releasing music anymore. But after he had died, a lot of his songs started charting again. So every decade that from the first decade that it charted there in the 40s all the way until 2008. Yeah, it's it's very impressive. Uh, Just a side note, if you guys hear some little sounds in the background, it's because our cat Dixie is is, she's just roaming right now. She's in the if you have a cat, you know what I mean. Just in 1948, he had five successful songs on the charts simultaneously. And that year, he had nine songs in the top ten. Five of those were number one and scored there for 40 of the year's 52 weeks. So, basically, he was killing it. He yeah. was he was <laughs> super popular. And he continued to dominate with 13 of the 20 best scoring country music songs from 1947 to 1948. So, that, that's really why we're covering him in the 1940s season because his country career was very much 1940s Mm -hmm. so um so although he really had a lifetime career and so he was popular in the 50s 60s and so on it this is really the time period where he was hitting those country charts like crazy so he became the host of checkerboard jamboree and that's a midday program that he shared with ernest tubb actually and that was broadcast from the Nashville Theater, which is the Opry. I'd love to hear old recordings of that because that would be super with cool. Eddie Arnold being a little bit of a comedian, and we know yeah. that Ernest Tubb was pretty funny too. I feel yeah. like I feel like their banter would be they would be good. really fun to listen to. Yeah, and then he also did hometown reunion with the Duke of Paducah, and so in 1948 he actually quit the Opry, which I think is really interesting coming off of the Ernest Tubb episode where he had this love and passion and loyalty to the Opry. And then you've got Arnold that actually quit it in 1948. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it's just kind of a, a funny comparison. It's interesting to see the contrast. Right. And so, so this is when we're going to start seeing a little shift. So his hometown reunion briefly broadcast in competition with the Opry on Saturday nights. And in 1949 and 1950, he performed in the Columbia movies Feudin' Rhythm and Hoedown. And he began working for a television program in the early 50s, and he hosted the Eddie Arnold Show. So mm-hmm. he was kind of moving into te- to TV. So this is where there's a big shift. So he was really moving away from country because, again, there was a rise of rock and roll in Nashville, and country music was getting really threatened. And Arnold's record sales, they were just starting to decline. They, they really were not doing as well. And so he decided to go for more of a pop sound to keep his career moving. And so I, I think this is such an interesting thing because we see that even now with Y'all, you're going to get sick of me. I'm telling you, you're going to get sick of this, but like Taylor Swift. And I think Casey Musgraves is actually a better example of this, where country music wasn't really giving her the 
um, flow anymore. It was kind of like she had really well good success with pageant material and Golden Hour, but she wasn't getting the radio play, and she wasn't getting this heightened success, and so she went in more of a pop direction. Now, whether or not that's a good decision, not really working out. Not really but. working out, but I don't, I don't, I'm not a fan of the Star Cross album. But my point is, the country ocean is not moving you along anymore and so you change your sails and you go for a different direction and i think it's really common where the the people in the country music industry will tear your name down for that they're yeah. gonna say oh you're going against your roots you're going against everything and but if that's what you have to do you have to do what you gotta do well i think it's interesting once again just kind of comparing a, a modern artist making that direction because i mean obviously like country music as a whole kind of went that direction and we'll we'll dive into a little bit more of a comparison of that here in just a minute but just artist wise like chris young he his older stuff is very very powerful like he's got such a good voice it's Mm -hmm. it's a lot more just you know good solid country but then now he mostly just does like pop stuff and it's mostly stuff that's more pop themed and sounded and i remember I think he had been asked in an interview, or maybe he had just said it on social media. One, I'm not, I can't remember for sure, but somebody was pretty much saying like, "Why don't you go back to making the old songs like Tomorrow and Getting You Home and all of those?" And he was like, "Well, why don't y'all buy those songs as much then, if that's what you want to hear?" Mm, so yeah. it's just kind of interesting. Whenever you do have crossovers in the pop, how it can boost up your sales a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, there were people in the country music establishment that were really annoyed with Arnold because he was recording with Hugo Winterhalter and his orchestra at the RCA Victor Studios in New York. And Winterhalter's pop-oriented arrangements of Arnold's songs, so like The Cattle Call and The Richest Man in the World, these were songs that he had already released, but he did more of like an orchestral arrangement, which is so funny that that was considered pop. That right. just shows that that's that whole genre has kind completely of that, like, big changed. Big band sounds. So yes, yes, and and I that it's a good point to bring up big band because, I like I said at the very beginning, make the world go away, really to me sounded like a, you know, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Andy Williams, Dean Martin, that kind of like strong crooner song. kind of song. Crooner, yes, yes. I, I thought that he was one of those artists. I didn't even realize he was a country artist. So it, it's funny how it's really carried him. He started doing this style, which which was really pioneered by Jim Reeves and Eddie Arnold, and it was known as the Nashville Sound. Right. And so the Nashville Sound, like Anna was just saying, it was it was very influenced by the kind of the older age crooners, Dean Martin, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, some of them with having just a strong voice with an orchestral background, but also still having the ultimate roots in country. And so, basically, once again, with the rise of rock and roll, and that was starting to pretty much take over the the nation at that point, and country music was starting to go into decline. So Chet Atkins, who's Thomas Rhett's grandfather, he was one of the main pioneers of the Nashville sound Mm -hmm. because he pretty much could see the trajectory of where it was going, looking at the charts and everything. And so he ended up producing a ton of albums during this time in the late 40s, early 50s to um, 
just pretty much try to keep up with the time so to say Mm -hmm. and so that's whenever you first start to see a lot of country songs start kind of drifting on into the pop charts as well Mm -hmm. and most of that really did you know come down from those kind of big band sounds there was a heavier string section a lot of times there was backing vocals in the songs as well Um, a lot of the artists were dressed in very elegant outfits like tuxedos and velvet and this and that super classy sounds classy feels classy exactly they would refine and change some of the instruments like the steel guitar and the fiddle and overall they just pretty much took a slight step away from the traditional honky-tonk sound Hmm. so kind of from what i was researching was that chad atkins jim reeves um eddie arnold owen bradley like i said just some of these guys they they were pretty much came to the conclusion that the country songs that had been playing just weren't quite resonating with everyday blue-collar people anymore that pretty much just the songs about alcoholism divorce adultery you know those kinds of things like where you hear the people joke about the old sad country songs Mm -hmm. i mean that that's what it was really then Mm -hmm. and so they're wanting to kind of bring it into a more i guess quote unquote like elegant or or really respectable that's the word i saw that's a better word for it they want to bring it to like a more respectable light in a type of way in a modern sound too yeah and so they they still would obviously sing about heartbreak there were still a lot of like cowboy songs there Mm -hmm. were still you know that you know some of those singing singing cowboy kind of tropes and stuff like that but they're presented in a more orchestral like i said backup singing more strings just something that was a little bit different than you know what we would hear back then previous to that and pretty much i think it's just kind of interesting because Anna and i we also had this conversation before we started recording that country music seems to go through this about every 10 years or so mm-hmm. that you had the early 40s and you had those songs that then you had the nashville sound come along mm-hmm. and i feel like that kind of dominated for a while and then you had willie Waylon, hank jr david allen coe they came through and broke it down with the outlaw sound mm-hmm. and the outsaw outlaw sound lasted for a while and then the 80s came a bit more pop and mm-hmm. then the 90s got the door kicked back in with alan jackson and george Strait. <laughs> And then the pop came back again, and, and then now it's getting kicked country, down again. So. Now, yeah, it, it really is an ebb, ebb and flow that it's Nashville like, is always going to Yeah, and I, I think it's, ultimately, I think it's a very good thing that we have a genre that, that tries different things, and that you have the traditionalists that push back on it, and you have the people who want to be more progressive with it push the other way. Mm-hmm. Because due to that ebb and flow country music is still extremely prevalent today yes i mean pop music in my opinion most of it sounds just pretty generic kind of straightforward you've got certain artists that i think are really interesting and and again you look at pop music in the 40s compared to now it's a completely different genre now Mm -hmm. whereas country it's stuck to its roots pretty well yeah you can listen to an old eddie arnold song or hank williams and still be like yeah "Yeah, it's country yeah it's like you country has such a characteristic style that even if we kind of get away from the roots it's always going to come back right. we're never going to get real far it's kind of like the people <laughs> aren't we the same way we we may we may travel somewhere we might go somewhere else but we're always going to come back we're, yeah. we're never going to get too far from our roots yeah and it's like i mean even with rock and roll you kind of see like we talked about before a couple episodes ago that rock and roll itself in that traditional sense isn't really around anymore that you do have different subgenres of rock mm-hmm. and then i feel like even rap 
has been changing a lot just within the last five years or so. Um, I'm saying it's kind of interesting because, I mean, every genre is going to have those moments and those periods, but I feel like country music has just continued to persevere and outlast and endure all kinds of different societal and musical changes over the decades. Yeah. Well, and and back to the, like, Nashville sound, I, I think it's interesting because it... This style, it's just, like you said, it's very classy, and I think it's so timeless. And so, while I love a Gene Autry song, I love a good Ernest Tubb Heartbreak song, but there's something a little bit kitschy about it. There's something a little bit like it has its time and place. Whereas this this Nashville sound, it, it fits anywhere. You can literally play it anywhere anytime anyone will like it it's just you know what i'm saying like there's like honky-tonk music that has to be played in a honky-tonk you don't play that at a nice restaurant but this music you can play it in honky-tonk you can play it in a nice restaurant you can play it at home you can play it in front of your kids you can play it wherever yeah. and it it fits anywhere and then also I, I think it's interesting how it paved the way for patsy klein she she really really knew how to do this nashville sound she i mean oh gosh i'm a huge patsy klein fan in 1965 he had his first number one country song in 10 years and it was what's he doing in my world which is a really good song and it struck gold again six months later with the song that he became most well known for and it was make the world go away as we mentioned before and that's one of my honestly from my all-time favorite country songs when it comes down to it that's a song i would sing my heart out to every single time i hear it It, i mean just the melody of it i think just the lyrics are just a good soulful sad like yeah but it's just such a good song to just listen to and sing to and yeah i love it yeah and so it was actually a a rendition do you know hank cochran was was the fellow that wrote it oh okay okay so was arnold the first one to sing it i think he was the I can't. I don't know for sure if he was the first one to sing it, but I know that his version was the first one that got really popular oh, okay. that big. Because, gotcha. yeah, gotcha. I think he was the first one to sing it, but I could be wrong. I didn't look into that directly. Well, it even became an international hit, which is not surprising. But um, it actually became his only top ten pop hit. So, hmm. um, so he performed with. The symphony orchestras in New York City, Las Vegas, and Hollywood, and he performed in Carnegie Hall for two concerts and Coconut Grove in Las Vegas. Oh, wow. So he hit it big. Um, he was the youngest artist to be inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1966, and he was 48 years old. Wow. And that following year, Arnold was voted the first ever Country Music Entertainer of the Year. Here's kind of a little interesting part of his career. He started he flip-flopped record labels during this time. So, he had been with RCA since 1944 and then he left the label in 1973. So, really long gap of time that he he was very loyal to RCA and but he moved over to MGM MGM Records. But apparently he was unhappy there. Although he did record four albums and he had probably several successes, 
He returned back to RCA in 1976, and he stayed with them for the remainder of his career. I did listen to an interview of him talking about this, and he basically said he just went back home. He went back to, to what he knew. I guess he was maybe trying to try something different, or I, I don't know. If you're with a company for that long, and you're just kind of, okay, well, maybe maybe this might be a little different, just a good change, but Didn't ultimately RCA is <laughs> the one that, that's been with him the whole time, and I'm sure he missed it. Yeah. So then in the 1980s, he retired, and he was still recording, though, and he stayed busy. In 1984, the Academy of Country Music awarded him the Pioneer Award, and he was still touring. Then on May 16, 1998, the day after his 80th birthday, he finally announced his real retirement he was like kind of retiring for like 20 years but but was this still was, doing some stuff yeah and... this really was his retirement during a concert at the hotel orleans in las vegas and make the world go, go away was inducted into the grammy hall of fame and then in 2005 he received the lifetime achievement award which he definitely earned absolutely <laughs> and he released his final album with RCA, and it was called After All These Years. If you want to just, if you need a tear to come to your eye, you should listen to that album. It, it, I listened to a little bit of it, and it was just so sweet and just so amazing that he was almost 90 years old and recording such a beautiful album. His voice sounded great. He, I think he must have really taken care of himself, too. Mm-hmm. I don't... I never saw anything about him getting real far into alcohol or drugs or anything. It just seems like he took really... And, and you know, I always say having a good family, good support really, really helps with that. So having his wife all those years, I think, must have really helped with that. Right. Um, I, I think we see that now like with Luke Combs. It just, he just seems so steady. And a good woman will do that for you. you know? Sure. <laughs> I think, yeah, like you said, talking about that last album, I think even even now, just to once again kind of relate it in modern terms, is like you look at somebody like Willie Nelson or Dolly Parton that's mm-hmm. still putting out music, and yep. they're old. I mean, they're getting on up there. But they, um, and yeah, like it might not sound as good as they did in the 70s or it might not be as polished. But I mean, like I, there's just something about hearing these artists that, we've largely grown up, grown up on and listened to our whole lives now being older. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's just like you said, it's a very sweet thing. Like you said, if you listen to the to the Eddie Arnold album, same for if you listen to any of Johnny Cash's Unchained albums. Oh, yeah. Um, it's just kind of that, it's sweet that an artist that you enjoy has lived such a long life mm-hmm. and their passion is still there. And so they're still recording the music because it's, for one, that's what they love to do. They're still mm-hmm. doing it for the fans. I just think it just shows where their hearts are whenever they get to that age, and they're just still they're still killing, still, it. still just, doing it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's it's may not be so much for the commercial success, like for the charts necessarily, but it's like you say for the fans and, yeah. and for for their legacy ultimately. I mean, this album came out in two thousand five, and here we are talking about it. Yeah, exactly. So. um he passed away of natural causes a week before he turned 90. And his wife of 66 years. They almost hit 70. That's so cute. His wife of 66 years had preceded him in death um, by two months. Wow. So it kind of sounds like one of those stories where 
one spouse passes away and then it's like i just can't live without you and yeah i mean you've been together 66 years i mean yeah. that is a so long sweet. time i mean i i think it's so beautiful to have a marriage that lasts that long the memories that you make the goods the bads the ups mm-hmm. and downs the children grandchildren yeah the traveling around the performances the singing the records i mean all of it i think it's just it's so cool whenever you get to live your life with that one person yeah well and it, it again it just seemed like through all of the publicity and all of the the public eye that he was in you know these award shows and all of that he still had a family to come home to mm-hmm. and he it seemed like they they were able to keep their private life separate and i think that's so important that's that's something we're seeing even now is is very very important to keep business business and keep your private life private life mm-hmm. Um, so he had two children, two grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren when he passed away. And there's a little story here, and I'm not, I'm personally not putting a whole lot of weight into it, because mm-hmm. um, from where I was looking it up, I couldn't really find an actual conclusion of it, but I saw a few articles to where a man from California named Christopher Edward Tanner claimed that he was the illegitimate son of Eddie Arnold. Uh And so the article was basically saying that Arnold had a relationship with Tanner's mother in the 1950s and that she worked as a secretary at Decca Records. And so pretty much it was actually a kind of a messed up thing because from the articles I was reading, Tanner basically just wanted a part of Arnold's estate. He wanted to to get some of the money and get some of the, the fame and the land and all else. And... The court shut it down one time, and they pretty much said, no, you're not Eddie Arnold's son. We're going to move on from here. Because Arnold had also specified in his will for the children and the grandchildren who was getting what in his will. Oh. So it was already specifically laid out from him. Yeah. Well, then, a little while later, Tanner came back a second time, said that Arnold was not in his right mind whenever he made the will, <gasps> that Arnold knew that he was his son. He had been sending Eddie Arnold... Uh, postcards and letters his whole life oh my gosh. and that at some point he feels like that Eddie had to have cared about him and that he would want him to be a part of this estate he even went so far as to ask the court if they could exhume Eddie Arnold's body to take a DNA test and match it with no his no way and oh my gosh obviously the estate and the court said no we're not gonna dig up this you know poor man's body yeah for this and can you imagine like being ac- his actual kids or grandkids and being like uh no you're a stranger you <laughs> don't yeah. get to just try it's like a billy jean kind of i think it shows true success when someone wants to be your fake child like you know billy jean with michael jackson and same thing happened to justin bieber at one point and um this this happens you know yeah. and and yeah it's like you say it's not worth putting a lot of weight into because no, like I, said, I truthfully personally i don't really believe it with eddie being with his wife for oh, that yeah. long and to have the kids that he had and i mean from like just like we said from the interviews and stuff you can look up about him he seemed like a pretty good guy i mean like just seemed like a genuinely like pretty funny he kind seemed of a, really nice yeah, yeah just like a good guy that really enjoyed that what he was doing and like the stage of life he was in i mean everybody's got Everybody's got their secrets in the closet, but I mean, something like that, I I just don't believe it. I feel like that guy was 100% just going after the state. Yeah. So we even kind of debated on even telling the story on the podcast or not, because it was like, 
I would do it, but I mean, ultimately, it it is something that that's there. It's something that's out there about him, and I think that's just a a little tidbit, just like Anna said, to kind of show his fame, show the kind of legacy they left behind. That some random guy from California was trying his best to <laughs> end up getting into just it. Get a, get a piece of it. He was just trying to, yeah. Well, I think that covers everything I've got on Mr. Arnold. You got anything else? No, not really. Just that. I've, you know, like I said, been a decent fan of his for a while. Really only knew a few songs, but another fun thing about recording these podcasts is that we find more songs about these artists that we may not have known about. Songs that you don't really hear as much now, but were very popular back in the day, or at least on the charts back then. And Mm -hmm. you listen to them now, and you're like, dang, that's, that's still a really good song. I also just wanted to mention his song, It's a Sin. I think, I mean, it's such a beautiful song. It was... I found out about it from the video game Fallout New Vegas a few years ago, um, back whenever I was playing it. But I think it's just one of those songs that's an absolute never skip for me. It doesn't matter what kind of a mood I'm in. That song comes on, I'm singing every single word, and I'm not skipping it, period. Yeah. So I, I've certainly been enjoying that. I think Arnold's voice is incredible. I yes. love his traditional country sound, but I mean, even um, you know the, the Nashville sound style that he ended up pursuing later on in his career still sounds just really good i mean the big bands the strings the orchestra behind them all that good stuff i mean i i just think that it it matches his voice very well Mm -hmm. and i think it's also just just really cool with him getting the influence from d martin and being carl's being some of these other guys i think that he could fit in a conversation with them as well i was actually just watching a video just kind of looking through some different interviews and stuff, and there was a video of Dean Martin and Eddie Arnold singing a song together. So if you get a chance, you should definitely go look that up. I think, I mean, it's beautiful how good they do on it. Yeah, just his voice was really the the key to his success, I think. Mm-hmm. It, it was just so beautiful and um, awesome. special. There's something special about it, for sure. And it's and like I said, timeless. There's There's something timeless about him, and I think... I think just, like you said, he just seemed like such a kind person, like such a nice guy. And I think that's timeless, too. Just when you have that good of a reputation, it, you're mm-hmm. never people are never going to stop talking about you, I right. think. So thank you guys so much for tuning in as we're continuing on this journey through the 40s and finding out more about some of the bigger artists from then. So same sort of thing as last week. If y'all have any little comments about Eddie Arnold or any special stories that you may know or may have heard of, then just send them in our way and maybe we can bring them up sometime or either way, we'd love to read them. So thank you guys for listening and we appreciate it. Yeah, next week we're going to be talking about the Carter family, which I am so excited about. They, This might be the episode that I'm the most excited about so far. I love June Carter so much. So if you know anything, any cool stories about the Carter family that you want to share, just DM us. And be sure to share this episode, and we'll talk to you guys next week. All right. Thanks. See you. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to Three Chords and the Truth. Leave us a positive review wherever you listen today, and be sure to subscribe to catch our new episodes every Thursday. You can find us on Instagram at Three Chords the Truth. Till next week.